The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's roundtable, where we look back on the week's big news with three top Washington journalists. Joining us today, Pema Levy, political reporter for Mother Jones. Hi, Pema. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you there. Ginger Gibson, a new mom and a new job, a deputy national digital editor for NBC News now. Hi, Ginger. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Welcome back, Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, now with the University of Virginia's Miller Institute, and a frequent contributor to MSNBC. Hi, Chris. Good to have you here, too. Hey, Bill. And among this week's topics for today's panel, one, as the number of U.S. cases of coronavirus tops 4 million, President Trump resumed solo briefings at the White House with no health professionals alongside of him. Two, in addition to Portland, Oregon, to Portland, Oregon, Trump has also sent federal agents into Kansas City, Albuquerque, and Chicago. Three, Florida Congressman Ted Yoho learned not to mess with AOC. Four, Trump failed to quash yet another anti-Trump book. And five, Washington kinda, sorta, has a new name for its football team. All right, so lots to talk about. Let's dive right in, guys. And look, it's not the biggest story of the week, but it's a story that everybody in Washington is talking about today. Dr. Anthony Fauci took the pitcher's mound last night to throw out the first pitch, and he missed by a mile. Chris, what happened? He didn't practice? Uh, I will tell you, so I have a little personal history with this. When I worked for Tom Perez as, uh, when he was the Secretary of Labor, he got to throw out the first pitch. Oh. And we, we practiced. We actually measured out from <laughs> the mound to home base. And what I think people often forget is the mound is actually raised. And so you actually have to account for that. Um, and, I mean, we really did practice pitches beforehand. This is not an easy thing to do. So notwithstanding um, the... Uh, the less than ideal pitch. Uh, I still have the greatest of respect for Dr. Fauci. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was sorry that the stands were not full. I'm sure he would have gotten a standing ovation. Uh, unlike Donald Trump, <laughs> when he went to the Nats game list last year and everybody chanted, lock him up, lock him up. But uh, uh, Ginger, people are saying this morning that this was his attempt to flatten the curve. <laughs> I like I like that. I like the flatten the curve. Uh, and I like that he's demonstrating that maybe he didn't have time to practice uh, <laughs> because uh, there were other things afoot that he was paying more attention to. Um, but I think uh, it can't. It can't be said enough how excited so many people, myself included, were to see baseball back. Um, it just feels like that little tiny piece of normal we've all been craving. And Pema, the, the moment of the night that I thought was even more significant was to see every single one of the, of the New York Yankees and every single player of the Nats take a kneel 
before all all simultaneously before the game. Can you imagine that happening a year ago? Yeah, no, I I can't. I think that that's you know, to me a really important sign of, you know, the ways in which things are changing just in terms of, you know, shifting our our window of what's acceptable and and what's even good, right? That that we want um this kind of protest um, that we care about uh, racial injustice and police brutality. And, you know, it's taking a knee isn't, isn't, doesn't mean it's the end of the road. Um, it's the beginning of the road. Uh, but I, I do think that that's, that's a big deal. And that symbolism is important. Yeah. I mean, from Colin Kaepernick and all the grief that he still takes, right. Um, and the only one for so long, willing to do that and and to see this go to major league baseball and both teams just do it just basically because this is what we should be doing i thought was absolutely um remarkable meantime in america's streets the mayor of portland last night went out to talk to some of the protesters and ended up getting tear gassed himself they're calling it operation legend sending federal agents from the department of homeland security uh, into Portland, and the president now says they're going, he's sending them into uh, Albuquerque, Kansas City. I think they're already in Kansas City and Chicago. What's going on, Chris? What's this really all about? Well, it's about election year politics. It's the 2020 equivalent of caravans and uh, deploying the National Guard to the southern border. You know, Bill, we can stipulate that there are serious crime issues in cities, there are serious racial justice issues. But, you know, in the past, when these things have happened, they've been traditionally handled by state and local authorities. And that's remarkable what you hear among Republicans, and especially conservative Republicans, that they're fine with what would have been seen as a serious intrusion had a Democratic president done uh, done this. But uh, from a political level, it's not clear that this really helps Trump in any way. If you look at some of the recent polling, uh, the Fox News poll, the Washington Post poll mm -hmm. last week, Biden is leading Trump by about 20 points on the issue, issue of race relations. And even on the issue of crime and safety, he leads by about nine points. And so this might appeal to part of Trump's base. Uh, but I think the rest of the America looks at that wall of moms in Portland uh, and I think is you know really inspired by that. So, uh, Ginger, the president clearly wants to make this campaign all about law and order. Um, and this is his way of doing so. Do you think it works? You know, I think that in 2016, when we had an open race, when people were uh, assessing two options, one that they knew and one that they didn't, they were willing, uh, some of them, to take a gamble on uh, a commodity that they didn't know, something new, and that was Donald Trump. Donald Trump is trying to recreate that dynamic again this time. He's trying to go back. Um, I mean, the speech he gave, uh, his, his sort of crime law and order speech uh, this week was nearly identical to the sort of the darkness in America speech he gave um, his acceptance speech in 2016. And the truth of the matter is you can't recreate 2016. Donald Trump is no longer an unknown commodity. Um, it's no longer, a, well, maybe he won't actually do the things he says he's going to do. Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot uh, said about trying to distract from the coronavirus. But I think one of the fundamental things to understand about Donald Trump um, is he'll keep doing something that works until it stops working. Uh, <laughs> the campaign he ran won him the primary. And 
and everyone kept saying he was going to pivot. Uh, and that never happened because Donald Trump kept running the campaign that he won um, and it still worked for him. And now he's in 2020 trying to still run that campaign um, and trying to still have that message. And he might have finally hit the point where where it doesn't work for him anymore. Pema, it, it may actually work for um, the anti-Trumpers. Um, uh, using this as another example of Donald Trump's failed leadership, at least that's the point of an, a new ad turned around very quickly by the Vote Vets uh, organization. Here is their latest ad on this so-called Operation Legend. This is not the enemy. This is not the military. This is Donald Trump's video game fantasy world, where he gets to play tough guy dictator, except real people are getting hurt. He's dressing up federal law enforcement like they're on the streets of Kabul. Mr. President, the United States military is sworn to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies of our Constitution, like you. Pretty strong stuff, Pema. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think, you know, Ginger's point here is, was, I think, really right, is that, you know, Trump is running as if he's the outsider and there's a problem and he's going to swoop in and fix it. Uh, and I think that that, <laughs> you know, as that ad connotes, like, no, Trump is already in power. This is already something, you know, a, a, a chaos and, uh, you know, an uprising that's going on under his watch um, and that he's completely unable to engage in uh, and acknowledge. Um, but I think that a lot of Americans are sort of engaging in it and sort of acknowledging, um, you know, the views of the protesters and, and what's going on and sort of recognizing this um, for what it is, which is, you know, sort of a, a scapegoating uh, tactic. Uh, and, and that, you know, and, and yeah, ultimately, like, he's, he's the guy in charge. And so, you know, I think the, the more campaign ads um, against him sort of point that out, right? That that this is not something that Trump would inherit, but something that he has fundamentally created and even exacerbated. Um, those are going to be strong arguments because ultimately people don't want fighting in the streets. Uh, they want they want a peaceful country. And, and, and Chris, the, the reality is, as the New York Times has, re has repeatedly pointed out, that the protest in Portland were continuing, but they had become smaller and more peaceful, and violence had basically disappeared until these federal agents arrived. Right. I mean, the idea that somehow, and the, the Trump campaign has been playing that this this is Joe Biden's America uh, riding on the streets. In fact, the riding on the streets happened when they escalated the crisis by bringing in these DHS agents, these kind of DHS agents with no markings on their uniforms. Uh, and and starting to take people into vans and detaining them. And I think it's significant. We should point out that a federal judge uh, ruled yesterday yes. uh, prohibiting uh, DHS from uh, detaining uh, or stopping journalists and other reporters who are trying to cover this. Uh, and that's important. I mean, again, it sort of speaks to why we have an independent judiciary and why we need this kind of check on, on the executive power. Uh, and Ginger, it's, I think it's a, uh, worth pointing out that these are not military. These are not troops in Portland because the Department of Defense, the Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, has said, no, we're not going to deploy troops to American cities. So instead, they've gotten the Department of <laughs> the Secretary of DHS, uh, Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, 
to send in drug enforcement agents, um, uh, border patrol agents, none of whom are trained in police work or riot control. That's right. I mean, we're watching um, sort of a shifting of the roles. We're watching sort of a, a dynamic. I think it's really important to take a step back to and look at what's happening and sort of um, consider what we would be saying if if the shoe was on the other foot, if if we were bringing in Border Patrol to uh, put down um, other, you know, other types of, of, of protests or riots. And I, and I think, you know, formally we would see Republicans really critical of that, that it's not the role of the federal government, um, that people shouldn't be um, stopped from from voicing their grievances, which is protected in the Constitution. Um, And we're not seeing that dynamic. And it really sort of underscores um, a shift in the Republican Party and a Republican Party um, that doesn't know what to do in this moment, uh, that doesn't know how to respond to Trump, um, that's watching his poll numbers tank, um, and that thought four years ago, or three years ago after he won, that he had somehow figured out the magic of the American public. And now uh, they don't know what to make of it. Um, and so we're seeing sort of some of that play out on the Hill, but we haven't seen sort of a what might have been expected pushback from Republicans uh, mm-hmm. up to this point as, as he's doing this. The strongest I saw uh, was former D- the very first DHS Secretary Tom Ridge, who said it would be a cold day in hell before he would send troops into America or force uh, federal forces into American cities, uh, and that in fact uh, uh, the DHS was created, as we remember, in the wake of September 11, to protect the country against uh, foreign terrorists, uh, not to be used as the pers- the president's uh, personal political man- militia. I believe he called it. I'm paraphrasing here, but I guess Pema. Then the question is building on what Ginger said: uh, Congress isn't going to do anything, so. How, if Americans are not happy with Trump, what Trump is doing, I mean, how can you stop it? Is it the mayors going to the courts, or what? What you know? What What are the options? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think that obviously the courts are an area that you know have already been turned to, and and might do some that you know that might play out in the future. Um, but I, I think this is up to the American people and, you know, registering their dissatisfaction with this, if indeed they are dissatisfied, I think that they are, but, you know, time will tell. Um, and that could be, you know, in people protesting in, you know, this movement of now a wall of moms, um, you know, sort of coming out and, and putting mm-hmm. their bodies between the federal, um, agents and, uh, and the protesters, um, you know, and it can, you know, it can be poll numbers in which, you know, if it, if the poll numbers continue to trend against Donald Trump, then, you know, maybe they reevaluate. Although, as um, Ginger pointed out, they do tend to, to double down even on failing uh, tactics. I, but I, I do think like more broadly, you know, we, we really are seeing a, you know, a perversion of DHS, which is, you know, a, a pretty new agency anyways, right? And you have, you know, the leadership there is all acting, right? So talk about Congress not being involved. Like, they have not confirmed um, Chad Wolf or Ken Cuccinelli or any of the top people at that agency. Um, You have the agency that has been sort of empowered straight through the executive branch for the last three and a half years um, in terms of the kind of treatment that they um, perpetrated on immigrants at the border. 
Uh, and now you have them sort of being sent into cities as the, you know, personal force of the president to, um, you know, enact his political agenda, basically. And, you know, I think that the more people sort of understand that, that you can't just sort of say, oh, well, they're, they're only like being mean to immigrants, so it's fine, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. these things are not, are not isolated. Um, you know, they're going to, you know, be turned on whoever they need the, you know, the administration decides they need to be turned on. Um, and so it, it, it's a really dangerous precedent. And I think that, you know, that it's up to people to, um, to stop it either, you know, with their bodies or by voting. Or, or on November 3rd, right. So meanwhile, on another topic, um, something else going on, of course. Chris, I, I mean, I'm just so frustrated. Damn it, I bought my ticket to Charlotte for the big Republican convention, and then I had to cancel that one and buy a ticket to Jacksonville. And God, now I, I, I'm out of money for Jacksonville. Uh, talk about Donald Trump in, in full retreat, right? I mean, that that in and of itself is remarkable. This is a president who does not like admitting mistakes. And but again, this was all entirely predictable back in May when he decided to pick a fight with Governor Cooper in North Carolina and basically threatened that unless North Carolina came up with a you know plan for holding the convention, he was going to move it. And at that time, what Governor Cooper was doing was rational, given kind of the uh, acceleration of cases in uh, COVID cases in North Carolina, which has continued to go up. So, you know, of course, Trump's Republican allies in Florida say, hey, we'll do it in Jacksonville. Uh, there was no clear plan for how to both move events, raise money. There were security issues involved with that. And obviously, he pulls the plug on this. And I think it's sort of telling that if you look at a bunch of issues, whether it is wearing masks, whether it's holding campaign rallies, or ultimately holding a virtual convention, uh, you know, say what you will about Joe Biden's campaign, but they've been out in front on all three of these issues. And Trump is now following uh, Biden's lead in all of this. Uh, and frankly, that's not what leaders do. Leaders lead. Leaders listen to experts. And if he had listened to his experts back in May, he wouldn't have gotten himself into this situation. So I find it interesting, uh, Ginger, that uh, the president now says, no, it's too dangerous to hold a convention in Jacksonville, but we want all the schools to open. We still want all of our schools to open. This is so um, uh, fraught with political difficulty. I, you know, I think that yesterday he said something that that sort of perked my ears. He said, "I'm setting a good example uh, by by not having this." And I went, well, "Who's going to follow that example? The other conventions already not happening. <laughs> There's already two. Um, so I think it is a struggle for him. I, I mean, schools are such a difficult question. Um, you look across the country and you see parents who are just desperate to get their kids back in school. You see students who are not learning. You see sort of the most vulnerable populations left without the services that we sort of as a society have um, implanted in our school system. Um, and, I, and I do think that there is some sign that Trump politically understands that um, People across the political spectrum want their schools to open. You look at Fairfax County in Northern Virginia, just outside of D.C., um, that has had such a controversial sort of process of, of figuring out what to do with their schools, decided this week to start all virtual, uh, abandoning sort of a hybrid option. But two-thirds of that district's parents had enrolled their children in the hybrid in-person option. Um, I mean, this is a, a part of Northern Virginia 
Virginia that is that is liberal, that has voted for Democrats, that is quite progressive, that has kept their numbers down. I mean, I live in Northern Virginia. You see mass compliance widespread, um, and and yet still wanted their kids in school. And so I think that this really shows that there's, um, it's easy to sort of put the pause button on a convention and to give a convention speech via Skype. It's really hard to put a kindergartner in front of a camera. Um, and it's a, it's a really difficult political question, I think, for, for officials in, in all positions. And Pema, so this is all part of the Jacksonville thing and other, that we've seen this week from other announcements from the White House as part of uh, what they're calling a new tone on the part of the president. He's, he's resumed the briefings. He has them all by himself late in the afternoon. Um, and he's reversed himself, as we just pointed out, on Jacksonville, on masks. Uh, is it working? Well, too little well, too, or too little too late, maybe? Yeah, I mean, you know, time will tell. If Trump becomes, you know, a serious, you know, man of science for the next four months, then yeah, it'll probably work. Um, but, you know, I feel like, you know, these conversations are silly at this point. Uh, you know, he'll come out and say one thing because his advisors convince him to, and then he'll go, you know, he won't like it and he'll go tweet the opposite. Uh, you know, so I definitely think it's uh, too little and too early to evaluate this, um, you know, because I think we've also hit this point where there was a world you know, and there's an alternative reality, right? There's a parallel universe where, uh, you know, Trump and his administration acted responsibly about this from the start. And there is some form of convention that's going forward, you know, not like the one in 2016, but, you know, some version of that, you know, that there is, there are schools reopening and feeling, you know, pretty confident and safe and that there are, there's enough money for protective equipment and, uh, you know, hazard pay for teachers and, you know, those kind of things we need to move forward. And I think, you know, the fact that we're in this universe and none of that is happening, you know, increasingly it sort of sets in that, like, it didn't have to be like this. Um, and, 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 and Trump, you know, is going to be out there every, every day giving his, you know, briefings, I guess. But, you know, he's also the person that, that could have made this very different. Um, and, you know, and I think that that's, you know, at this point, he's almost sort of campaigning against this, like, alternate universe of, of where things just could, could be very, very different. And the more people realize that, I think, um, the more difficult it is to overcome that. Well, I'm not sure he's going to become a serious man of science in the next four months. I don't, I don't <laughs> no. know whether we could uh, hold our breath for that. But but we, he, we, we already know that he is a very stable genius, as he keeps telling us on um, almost every day now, uh, talking about and bragging about. Uh, the great uh, cognitive test that he took and passed with flying colors. He aced it, uh, he says, uh, including repeating these four very difficult words to pronounce. Here is the president. Person, woman, man, camera TV. They say, that's amazing. How did you do that? I do it because I have, like, a good memory, because I'm cognitively there. So, a person, man, woman, camera, TV. I'm a stable genius, Chris. <laughs> I said the five words. <laughs> yeah, I, this is one of the odder things, <clears throat> and I think it sort of goes back to, you know, remember a couple of weeks ago where following 
uh, the president's speech at West Point, he then had to go prove that he did know how to actually walk down a set of a ramp, that he does know how to drink water. I mean, you know, th this is him. Uh, well, let's admit it. He doesn't actually understand what this test is for. This test is only given if doctors suspect you have some indication of cognitive decline. So the fact and that you are dementia, right. right? The fact that you are not suffering from dementia uh, is hardly the standard that we want to hold our presidents up to. Uh, and uh, and leaving aside the fact that he's not even quite sure when he actually took the test, and he may be off on all of that. But look, I mean, this <laughs> is a president who uh, it, this is about image. And I think this is why um, he keeps talking about fake poll numbers, why he, because his image is winning. I'm the best. I'm the greatest. I'm the smartest. And you're starting to see that image being increasingly tarnished along the way. And so he grasps. He sits there with Chris Wallace and say, you know, your Fox News polls are fake polls. Or he's trying to hold himself again up as this kind of remarkable leader by touting uh, his uh, uh, his results on a dementia test. And so uh, it, it's grasping and it's both amusing and it's troubling at so many different levels. Uh, well, I want to know, I want you to know, I took the test too, and I did very well in uh, de identifying an elephant. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, aced, I aced that one. Uh, our panel today, Ben Levy from Mother Jones, Ginger Gibson from NBC News, and Chris Liu from the University of Virginia Miller Center. Uh, we are going to take a quick break, and then we'll come right back. Uh, Chris has mentioned a couple of times polls, the polling numbers. Let's get into that when we return here on the Bill Press Pod. And today's roundtable brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. You know, anything I can say about the UFCW, and they are a great union under the leadership of, of uh, President Mark Perrone, I just invite you to go to the New Yorker magazine on July 20 and read Jane Mayer's account of the conditions in the poultry plants in my home state of Delaware, where the UFCW workers on the front lines there and in meatpacking plants and grocery stores across the country have been on the front lines of this pandemic crisis. Uh, as uh, Jane Mayer points out in her article, the union UFCW estimates that nearly 30,000 of their workers in the food and healthcare sectors have contracted COVID-19 and over 238 of those have died. So we salute the members of the UFCW, thank them for their great work and the sacrifices that they have made to continue to serve us during this pandemic, uh, and invite you to check out their website at ufcw.org. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. 
Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Uh, and we're back with uh, today's uh, panel, uh, again, on today's roundtable. Pamela Levy here from Mother Jones, Ginger Gibson, Deputy National Digital Editor for NBC News, and Chris Liu with Virginia's Miller Institute. You see him often on MSNBC. Chris, you've mentioned the polls a couple of times. Uh, on the national polls, almost every one of them show uh, uh, Joe Biden with a double-digit lead over uh, Donald Trump. The latest Fox News shows Joe Biden with let's talk about battleground states, with an 11-point lead over Trump in Pennsylvania, 13 points over Trump in Minnesota, 9 points over Trump in Michigan, and the latest Quinnipiac poll shows Biden 13 points over Donald Trump in the sunshine state of Florida. Ginger, is it all over? I never call it over. I mean, if the election were today, it's clear that Joe Biden would be the easy winner and that um, we would see sort of a, a landslide electorally. I think that we are likely seeing Donald Trump's low watermark. Um, I mean, I can't imagine it gets much worse than being nearly tied uh, or losing for him in Texas, a state that um, right. many There's of us have thought one. would require would require millions of dollars of spending to be competitive for a Democrat. Um, but um, I, I don't know that he stays this low. Um, you know, Pema made a point, you know, could he come out and be a man of science and talk about science and sort of turn things around? Um, I, he is showing signs that he realizes it's not good for him. And he's trying to sort of make an appeal um, that he can take this seriously. Um, I, you know, I think that sort of at its core, Donald Trump cares very much about or understands stands very much about how things look. Um, I think that's why this briefing has been so important to him from the start. It's about how things are perceived and how he presents them. Um, and so he is going to concentrate on that between now and, and November. But um, it's, it's very clear it's not good for him. It's very clear that they're going to have to do uh, radical things. And, and I think that uh, when you talk about the cognitive test, right, um, Donald Trump is trying to uh, make this, uh, he, he's long tried to make elections where he says, look, you know, I'm not great. And, I'm, and, and I get that. And, and I get that people think I'm not great. And I'm not trying to convince you that I'm great. I'm just trying to convince you that the other guy is worse than me. Um, and so that's why he talks about his cognitive test. If he's going to convince you that Joe Biden is not cognitively there, he needs to convince you that he is less cognitively there than him, right? That he is better, um, at least marginally. Um, and so that's what we're going to see between now and then, him trying to convince people. And the tricky part about 
polls and a strategy like that is a lot of it is convincing people to just not show up. Um, and so when you call as a pollster and you ask someone who you're going to vote for and you ask them how likely they are to vote, it's hard to measure those people that are squishy, um, that maybe haven't voted before, that maybe did vote before, but might not be inclined to vote again. And that's really Trump's strategy. And that's why um, we have to be a little more cautious, I think, when we look at polls uh, ahead of November. Yeah, Chris, uh, George Will, conservative columnist uh, around for a long time this week, uh, said flat out he's going to vote for Joe Biden. Um, uh, and he also said he predicts, looking at these polls, that the election is going to be over by 11 p.m. East Coast time on November 3rd. <laughs> to do what you want to say, basically, whoa, slow down, George, huh? Well, look, obviously, you know, Florida's the big state there. I mean, and that's not one that I think any Democrat had thought would be a, uh, a a sure thing. And it's one that I think always tantalizes Democrats, but then gets away at the last point. So obviously, Florida would be before that 11 o'clock time slot if, right. if that were to happen. Look, I, to Ginger's point, I'd say this. I mean, you know, um, there really are no fake polls. Polls matter. I think they're a snapshot in time. And I think what you see from these polls is... Um, Trump's support among his base starting to erode a little bit. Uh, and, and what's notable is his support among seniors is dropping precipitously. Uh, but again, what you see among Biden is that while Biden actually has actually um, solidified Democratic support among suburban women, uh, whites with colleges, he is lagging among people of, of color, in particular Hispanic voters. Um, and so I think it certainly shows where he has to actually uh, make up a little ground at this point. What's interesting as you look ahead is what could potentially be the game-changing events? I mean, short of like a vaccine that absolutely 100% works, um, we're not going to have kind of the traditional convention bounces anymore. Uh, we are going to have a vice presidential announcement from Biden, which obviously, depending on who he picks, could actually help solidify his base. Uh, and then you're going to have the debates. And so we're, but we're really not going to have like a real campaigning season. I mean, we're always going to be campaigning, but it's going to be at like a lower level. So you could potentially kind of see these numbers kind of just stick. And from Biden's standpoint, that's helpful because the longer he stays in the lead, the easier it is to get volunteers, the easier it is to raise money. And it's one of the reasons why Trump is continuing to push back against this narrative that he's behind, because once that narrative takes hold, uh, it's tough to get your uh, to get your reelection off the ground. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, uh, Joe Biden has hardly been standing still. I mean, he gets criticism for the basement strategy, but he is getting out of the basement almost every day to give a uh, uh, to make a statement or give a speech somewhere nearby. Um, and this week, uh, or last week, uh, basically undercover, under under the radar, none of us knew this happened, he came into Washington, D.C. and sat down with his former boss, uh, President Barack Obama. Pema, here's a little bit of their conversation, social distancing in Barack Obama's office here in Washington. He ran by deliberately dividing people from the moment he came down that escalator. And I think people are now going, I don't want my kid growing up that way. The thing I've got confidence in, Joe, is, is your heart and your character and, and the fact that you are going to be able to reassemble the kind of government that cares about people and brings people together. So Pema, Barack Obama obviously itching to get into it. Um, I'm surprised he 
came out so soon uh, in this race. Does this indicate that he's going to be there, like, do you think, full bore between now and November? You know, he might be. I mean, you know, whatever version of full bore we have yeah, <laughs> true. at the moment, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's it's not that early, right? Like, we're only a few months from this election. Okay. 100 um, days, but... Right. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's July. It'll be fall before before you know it. And, you know, I, I think I will say I believe that increasingly the idea that, oh, you have to save something for October, right? There's a surprise or, you know, you want to get people at the last minute. Like, I, I think people are, are making their decisions and then they don't want to really revisit their decisions if, if they can help mm. it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think impressions matter uh and and they and they build on each other and that's why you sort of have you know these attempts to define your opponent early um an area in which i think democrats have done really well this year and uh the trump campaign has has completely failed <laughs> uh in, in in that regard and i think has has really hurt hurt their ability to tarnish joe biden uh and so you know i think that right now what the biden campaign is doing is going okay people know who Joe Biden is, who is vice president, but like they don't really know him. And, you know, they might have like some positive thoughts about him, but they're not like that positive. And so they're kind of in this phase of introducing Biden to people and trying to, you know, uh, ident- you know, create an identity of him to share with the public. And it makes perfect sense to me that Barack Obama is a big part of that. Um, you know, a big part of sort of vouching for Biden and, you know, shaping people's perception of him in that sort of positive way, uh, you know, doing some of those like, you know, for example, also doing these sort of positive TV spots of like, this is who Trump is, but this is who I am. Uh, and so, you know, it, it really makes sense that, you know, while the Trump campaign is sort of scrambling to say, like, what can we hit Biden with that's going to stick? Oh, you know, mental decline. Oh, he's like soft on China. Like these are, you know, kind of what they've sort of grasped at right now. And so it makes a lot of sense to me to sort of pull out Obama and use him to help, um, you know, positively define Biden for Americans. And, and I really think the earliest you can sort of define yourself and your opponent, uh, the better. And, and besides, you know, in voting in, in a pandemic, you know, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs with this situation. But one of them is that people are going to be voting by mail a lot, which means you don't wait until you know, the mm-hmm. day of the election to decide who you're going to vote for. Um, you know, if you want your ballot to count, you have to decide before that. <laughs> and, and so I, I do think that, um, you know, it, it sort of moves the timeline of everything up uh, by at least several weeks. Uh, and, and let's not forget that um, the rollout with Barack Obama could be just the warm-up to the rollout with Michelle Obama, which will be coming down the road, too. <laughs> you know that uh, the she big guns. is... She's itching to get involved uh, as well and will be. So uh, finally, I'd like to get each of your comment. We saw something this week in the United States Congress, on the floor of the Congress, that we have never seen anything like this before. Uh, And, of course, it started when a congressman, by the way, I had never heard of before, uh, Congressman Ted Yoho from uh, Florida, uh, walked up to uh, Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, Uh, and said he was just disgusted with her comments that poverty rates could have anything to do with uh, the level of crime uh, in uh, American cities, and then walked away uh, with a particular comment um, that she immediately, that was outrageous, uh, and she immediately took offense to it and went to the floor of the House of Representatives to condemn him for. Here is uh, 
the great AOC. In front of reporters, Representative Yoho called me, and I quote, a fucking bitch. These are the words that Representative Yoho levied against a congresswoman. In using that language in front of the press, he gave permission to use that language against his wife, his daughters, women in his community. And I am here to stand up to say that is not acceptable. What I believe is that having a daughter does not make a man decent. Having a wife does not make a decent man. Treating people with dignity and respect makes a decent man. Ginger, don't mess with AOC, right? That's right. I mean, I think that the speech she gave in response to Yoho's sort of non-apology apology um, really resonated with a lot of people. Um, it was interesting because I think that sort of that initial exchange is evidence of what happens when members of Congress don't interact with one another uh, who they don't agree with. I mean, if you if you think back even a decade ago, um, members of Congress did interact a lot more with people that they didn't agree with. Um, and I think that that has declined. And the fact that Yoho would think that it was okay to say that um, sort of just shows that, that, that the lack of you know, consideration for a fellow member uh, has really sort of dwindled. Um, but I think that AOC showed that she continues to be someone who can sort of speak to a feeling and a thought um, that women, uh, maybe not even just of a certain age, but women in general have. And, and her remarks further about this is what this is what harassment looks like. This is what it looks like. Um, I think really sort of stuck for a lot of people. And, you know, Chris, um, a lot of people in the beginning dismissed um, uh, Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as like a showboat, right? You know, wasn't that serious, just a good at getting good press and everything. But I think she's, with this and other occasions, uh, like the Green New Deal, she's really proved that she's a very savvy uh, new member of Congress, right, with a great potential. Yeah, and let's actually ask, add when um, Michael Cohen testified before the House Oversight Committee, uh, AOC did one of the most masterful questionings of him and really kind of laid the factual predicate for why Trump's tax returns were important because he, she essentially got uh, Michael Cohen to say that they had inflated their assets for both uh, bank and tax reasons. And so uh, this is, uh, you know, she, she is somebody that uh, you do not underestimate. Uh, and I think she showed that not only with her handling over the last couple of years, but with kind of the deafness that she dealt with this issue uh, yesterday. I'd also say for Congressman Yoho, it's also a textbook example of how not to apologize. Please go back and look at what he said. <laughs> there was nothing in his apology right. that was rem remotely remorseful. And I'd also just pick up on the point that Ginger just made. I mean, I, I spent 12 years working on Capitol Hill. And look, members of Congress don't always like each other. In fact, they often dis strongly dislike each other. But there's protocols, there's courtesies, there's niceties uh, in how they deal and they interact with each other on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think the fact that Yoho did this to a fellow member in front of a reporter, uh, I think, you know, I think is a telling sign of the times where um, we really kind of have lost any kind of sense of deference and respect to people of the other party. And that certainly doesn't speak well in terms of dealing with the bigger issues of the country. No, in fact, Pema, uh, I saw the AOC say that she had never spoken to this guy at all, never exchanged a greeting with him or anything, right? 
And then these are the first words out of his mouth to her. Yeah, I mean, I think this this entire episode is kind of a perfect microcosm for how the Republican Party has responded to AOC in particular, and also AOC as sort of a symbol of um, a political movement that elevates women and people of color and is progressive and believes that those sort of people should be in a position of authority, right? I mean, you know, you mentioned that there was sort of a dismissal of, of her as, oh, she's a showboat and, oh, she's, you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, yeah she's she's really good at social media, right? But, but part of what's going on is that Republicans are so... Um, are so confused and upset by her ability to to win an election and be popular that they can't stop talking about her. Like, Yoho was upset about a town hall she did in her own district. It wasn't even something that she said in Congress. It wasn't about a bill that she's trying to pass there. It's, it's her talking to her own constituents, and Republicans are watching it and freaking out because they see a Latina woman, um, you know, in a, in a position of authority, having these opinions, um, easily winning her re-election primary, uh, and they can't get their heads around it, and it's incredibly threatening to them. Uh, and and it's not, they're not, this is not the kind of person that they're used to sort of deferring to, you know, as a colleague, even if they disagree with, right? Like, this is someone who is a threat to the order. Um, and so they constantly attack her. And in doing so, they elevate her. And then mm -hmm. she responds. And she's very good at social media. So, you know, sort of these complaints of, like, she's unserious, she's a showboat. It's like, well, you keep throwing her in the spotlight by <laughs> freaking out about it, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, she would have less time in the spotlight if you just treated her as, you know, a respected member of Congress and, you know, stopped freaking out so much. Right. Uh, and this is sort of a, a perfect microcosm of their, you know, total inability to um, recognize this. And, you know, as they, we saw from the primaries over the last few months, there's going to be more folks um, like AOC in, in Congress. I mean, these things are changing. And I think that, you know, you see the panic really um, heightening there <laughs> as well as you see more, you know, young people of color who are progressive um, coming into Congress and, and shaking things up. And, and yeah, look, she's, you know, if you look at, it's not just on social media, if you look at the way she questions, um, you know, people that come into committee and stuff, she's, she's talented and, and she's growing and, and learning. And, you know, I'm sure that's scary for them as well. Yeah, two quick ads to that. One is uh, I also want to give some props to uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, who give, who, uh, for giving her this opportunity uh, and recognizing uh, what she was going to say and giving her a lot of support, um, recognizing, I think, her abilities uh, and what she brings to the Democratic caucus. Uh, and secondly, it reminded me of how badly things, and Chris, you made this point, uh, have gotten in terms of personal relationships uh, in the Congress. And if uh, all of our listeners, uh, for those who haven't yet heard our podcast earlier this week with Julian Zelizer, a professor from Princeton, about his new book called Burning Down the House, where he points out that this ugliness, this hostility, this total lack of civility in the Congress goes back, didn't start with Donald Trump, it goes all the way back to Newt Gingrich. Uh, check out that latest podcast here on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, and what a great conversation, wrapping up this week's news with uh, Pema Levy, Ginger Gibson, and Chris Liu. We won't let you go, however, before we, uh, as we always do, get your favorite story of the week, something that 
serious or not, just caught your attention that you just can't can't let go until you tell us about it. How about Ginger? You want to start? Yeah, I'm going to start with a little plug for the nonprofit journalism world. Um, the Heckinger Report, which covers education, um, is doing a good job of, of covering this issue that we already talked about, what happens to our schools. And they have a great piece about parents and the panic um, and really getting to at an important point, which is that this this pandemic, this crisis uh, may be the biggest risk to women and women in the workplace and women's financial independence that we've seen in generations um, after so much progress was made. And so I really recommend the reporting they're doing. They have some great piece on how uh, parents are struggling with the clothing of schools and, and what that means for women. Uh-huh. The Heckinger Report, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, how about Pema? Yeah, so I'm going to plug a story by my colleague, Tim Murphy. Uh, he has a uh, large uh, feature out this week. And, you know, as basically we reexamine, you know, <laughs> aspects of our society that really have um, racist origins uh, and also a history of police brutality and, you know, violently enforcing white supremacy, um, he has a piece that really enlightened me on the subject of the Texas Rangers, um, which uh, I didn't, I did not grow up in Texas and I didn't know much about them, but turns out they were basically a violent white supremacy force that went around murdering Mexican-Americans. But we still, uh, you know, sort of tout them and and see them as, you know, people of law and order and and, and justice when when they were Mm -hmm. the opposite. Um, And so it's a really fascinating story about what happened when one um, Latino uh, member of the Texas legislature tried to take on the Texas Rangers a century ago uh, and what happened uh, to him when he did that. So the story is called A Century Ago, One Lawmaker Went After the Most Powerful Cops in Texas, Then They Went After Him. And that's uh, at motherjones.com. So Tim, I, by Tim Murphy, motherjones.com. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, how about you, Chris? Wrap this up here. Well, this story is technically seven days old, but I don't think it's gotten the attention it deserves. And it's one of those kind of constant uh, Trump administration scandals that kind of get lost in the thrall of the daily news. Uh, it involves Seema Verma, who heads Medicare and mm-hmm. Medicaid for the Trump administration. Uh, last week, she was the subject of a scathing uh, inspector general report for wasteful spending. And what the HHS IG found is that she had spent $5 million dollars hiring um, Republican communications consultants to help uh, burnish her image. And mind you, her image had needed burnishing because uh, she had tried (laughs) to cut uh, gut the ACA. She was trying to make it harder for poor people to get on Medicaid. And so she hired these consultants to try to get her invited to events like the Kennedy Center Honors. She was trying to get profiles in magazines like Glamour. Um, And she spent $5 million on these consultants uh, and they charge rates that far exceeded what any federal employee would make. And on that point, there are at CMS, the agency that she heads, uh, 200 in-house communication staffers uh, that she could have used that she chose not to. Uh, and when this HHS IG report came out, instead of her uh, taking her lumps, she attacked the report as disingenuous and a distraction from the pandemic. And so I point this out simply because uh, this happens not quite every day, but literally multiple times a week. Uh, and this mm-hmm. kind of conduct would never have been allowed in any previous administration. 
uh, and in this administration, they will likely get her a promotion. Uh, and it's another one of those stories that just there's so much going on. There's st important stories like this that just don't get the coverage that they need. Um, it, it's like the old fire hose of news coming, as they talk about, from the Trump White House. Too much um, gets lost in the in the in the deluge, I guess. Uh, and so, for my favorite story, I want to. After all, look, I'm the host here. Uh, I want to do a quick two twofer here, but one building on what uh, uh, Pema mentioned. I want to plug. Uh, a column in Mother Jones by David Korn, the Washington Bureau Chief of Mother Jones, about uh, the sad news that uh, Stephen Miller, the president's top immigration uh, counsel uh, at the White House, his grandmother died of COVID-19 out in Santa Monica. Uh, what David points out, however, is uh, that the White House and Stephen Miller refused to acknowledge that she died of COVID-19, and when presented with a medical record from the hospital, her death certificate, which clearly says COVID-19, uh, the White House responded that this was simply fake news. Uh, we also remember that Stephen Miller's wife tested positive at one time, and he and his wife had to quarantine for two weeks, but he refuses to acknowledge, uh, as David Korn reports, that his grandmother died of covid uh, 19. Um, and with that, my, my real favorite story of the week is that the Washington football team has a new name, which is the Washington football team. <laughs> Don't you guys think they could have done better than this? Okay. <laughs> what I find funny about it is for the last two years, those of us who refuse to pronounce the name Redskins have been calling it the Washington football team because we felt it needed a new name, and now they've dropped that old name, and they can't come up with a new name, and so in the interim, they're just gonna call themselves <laughs> the Washington football team. It just proves how dumb the whole bunch of them are, I think, and Dan Snyder and- Are brilliant, because they'll sell a round of clothes that say the Washington football team, and then a <laughs> round of clothes that say the new team name on it, and you'll get double the jersey sales. I guess so, Ginger, maybe if they thought that, if you really think they thought that far ahead. I mean, the Red Hawks or whatever, it doesn't seem to be, it could have been that difficult to find a new name. But we're stuck with now the Washington football team. Hip, hip, hooray. Uh, Pemi Levy, how, how can people follow you when you're uh, not on the Bill Press pod? Oh, gosh. Um, during those sad times, I am on Twitter, at Pema Levy. At Pema Levy. Ginger? People find uh, you at, at Ginger Gibson uh, and editing stories at NBCNews.com uh, for our political coverage. All right. At Ginger Gibson and Chris Liu on Twitter. At Chris Liu 44 on Twitter. At Chris Liu 44 and Bill Press at Bill, uh, Bill Press Pod on Twitter. Hope you follow me there and hope you also subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. If you haven't already done so, wherever you're listening to this podcast, just pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe and you are in. Uh, and again, follow us all on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at Bill Press 5. That's it for today's roundtable. Thank you so much, Pema Levy, Ginger Gibson, Chris Liu. Stay strong, stay safe, and uh, we'll see you again soon on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. 
New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.